I think that one of the things that makes us most anxious in life is feeling like we're going to run out of something or that there's a scarce supply and there won't be enough for us. I know you've felt that way. I have too. Do you remember in the weeks after the September 11, 2001 attacks, I don't know about how it was for you, but where I was, there began to be this rumor that because of the, the oil uh, supply uh, disruption, we might run out of gasoline. And that went around for a few days, and enough people, I guess, bought into it that it started to be a reality, at least where I was in Oklahoma City. So one day, I went driving all around Edmond, which is the suburb where I went to school and lived, and enough people had bought into the hysteria that there were lines at the gas stations, people filling up. So I drove around for probably an hour, which looking back is a dumb thing to do if you're worried you're going to run out of gas. But I drove around until I finally found a station that didn't have long lines because I thought, what if I can't drive home to see my family at some point? What if, what if we run out of gasoline and I can't fuel my car to get home? Or then, almost three years ago, many of us began learning what these, um, the, the names of different energy companies and the cooperatives because we were running out of power during a very cold snap and we worried that there wouldn't be enough power left to keep things running, to keep things heated, uh, to keep a lot of things sustained. And so I, the word went out, please conserve energy. And I think during that time, some of us might have thought, well, I'll conserve later, but right now I'm going to use all I can, which is, again, a foolish thing for us all to do, but we did it. Let's own it. On a, on a lighter note, probably in the first few weeks or months after the pandemic began, I won't make you raise your hands and fess up, but I wonder how many of you had a stockpile of toilet paper at your house because we were worried we were going to run out of that. And then as the weeks progressed, there were different things that we were told. The supply chain had interrupted and there might not be enough of. And that was difficult and that affected people in different ways. But we get very anxious when we're worried that something is scarce and we might not get what we need from that supply. We're going to be in John chapter 6 today. Let me set the scene for what's going to happen in this chapter. So in the previous chapter, Jesus has healed a man who is paralyzed. And now it's Passover time, John tells us. Passover's key in this gospel. The first, there's three Passovers that show up in the gospel of John. The first one is when Jesus turns the water to wine. The third one is when Jesus goes to Jerusalem to die. And this one in the middle is where our action takes place today. And you would think... Passover, what typically happens is the crowds would descend on Jerusalem. That's what you do. You go to the main city. But Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee. He's over on the other side. And a crowd of 5,000 men, which means fifteen to 20,000 people, follow him. We think, what's going on? They should be going to Jerusalem. Why are they following this guy, Jesus, across a body of water to somewhere else? Well, John tells us they've seen the signs that Jesus is doing. They've watched him heal people. They've watched him forgive people. Uh, They've watched him deliver people from demonic possession. And they think, let's follow this guy. It's also true that as the years went on, as the Jews lived under Roman occupation, that Passover became 
more and more of a, a huddle, sort of a nationalistic time where they would get together and think, maybe this is the year that God will send us a deliverer to overthrow the oppressors, maybe in a violent way. And in fact, John tells us later in the story we're going to look at today that the people wanted to make Jesus king. And that wasn't just an honorary title. They wanted him to lead them in battle. That was one of their expectations. So they follow Jesus across. They wonder what he's going to do. And John tells us that Jesus sits down, which is a teaching posture. He's about to address the crowds. But Jesus is a good teacher and he knows human behavior. And he knows that people cannot learn well when they're hungry. So that's the first order of business that needs to be taken care of. We pick up our story in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he had in mind what he was going to do. So Jesus sees the need for some quick food. He asks his disciples. He wants to see what plan they might come up with. Here's Philip's answer. Verse 7, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So Philip says, there's not enough money. And I also want to say to Philip, hey, even if you had this money, where are you going to like, go and immediately buy this much food? But Philip fo- focuses on the scarcity of money, and he's right. Verse 8, another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Andrew says, five small loaves. Not just any loaves, small loaves. Not just any fish, but small fish. It's the tiniest amount possible. And by the way, barley loaves in this time, that's the bread that the poor would eat, or that even animals would eat. It's not the nicer bread. So it's the worst case scenario Somehow this boy has packed a lunch and no one else has. It's not enough food for everyone. There's no money. Everything's in short supply. What are we going to do? Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass. Notice the abundance language starting immediately. It wasn't just grass. There was plenty of grass for them to sit on. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Notice the language here. He takes and he gives thanks. This is Lord's Supper kind of language. John's gospel doesn't include the Passover meal toward the end. This is as close as we're going to get for Jesus. He takes and he gives thanks and he distributes it. He's doing here more than the minimum requirements. He's not sure everyone, not making sure everyone just has enough to eat. It is abundant. There's so much left over. It's not just what they need to be full. It's so much food, more than they ever could need. So they go from a scarcity of funds and food to this lavish meal that even has leftovers. 
Now, if we read on in John chapter 6, the story continues. There's an extraordinary event involving water, kind of a water miracle. So when we read John chapter 6, we get Passover and food for people who need it and deliverance and a water miracle. Where else have we seen this? We go back to the Exodus. What's happening when God first delivers his people from oppression? Exodus chapter 12, there's Passover and deliverance. Exodus 14, there's a water miracle when they cross the Red Sea. Exodus 15 through 17, God is providing food and water for them in the desert when they desperately need it. It's another, maybe the first story of abundance. And John is here going to paint Jesus as the new Moses who is about to deliver his people in the midst of their need. It's abundance in the middle of an anxious period of time. God has provided what they need when they don't have it. I wonder how people respond when God does this. Surely it's overflowing gratitude when they see the work of God overcome their lack. Well, how do they respond in the first story of abundance in Exodus? Well, if you go to Exodus 15, their response to all this is grumbling. Now, if you go to Exodus 16, the next chapter, then their response there is grumbling. And if you flip over to chapter 17, they've moved on to grumbling. Skip over Leviticus and go to Numbers, and they're still in the desert. Now, what's going on there in, say, Numbers 14? Anybody have a guess? They're grumbling. God has provided, and they are still grumbling. After all he's done, after God has delivered them from their oppressors, after they've seen God give their enemies a sort of 10-lesson correspondence course in who he really is, After they've seen the waters part, after the attackers were drowned, after they've been fed when they didn't have food, they grumble. It's all because of this scarcity. God can part the waters, but can he give me the water I need to drink in this moment? Scarcity leads to their anxiety. So what happens if we go back to our story in John's Gospel? How might the people respond? Jesus has provided food. His disciples have witnessed this. He's then taught on being the bread of life and being all they need. How might they respond to God's generosity after their moment of scarcity? John chapter 6, verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? He's talking about his teaching on being the bread of life. They've witnessed all this, and Jesus can see their first response is grumbling. That's not all they do in this story. What else do they do in response? Verse 60, they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So they cower in fear. We can't accept this hard teaching. Verse 64, Jesus says to them, there are some of you... Who do not believe. So there's doubt. Verse 66. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They're going to flee. Look at all these responses. I wonder if you resonate with them sometimes. When we've watched God at work and then see our 
pitiful responses to that sometimes. There's one person who seems to get it right. It's a person we love to hate on a little bit because he talks quickly a lot. It's Peter. And yes, he does some things that are worthy of a little derision, but I think we'd probably do them too. He gets it right in this story. Everybody's leaving, and Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter confesses and gets it right in this moment. And when Peter gets it right, he models for us what it means to respond to God's abundance. Peter shows us that God's abundance turns our anxiety into gratitude. When we see all that God does, we see his abundance, then all our anxieties about scarcity should turn to gratitude. We spend so much time in a scarcity mentality. Jesus can say things like he says in this passage where he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. We hear that and we think that's nice. That's wonderful. But let me tell you about my reality. And we're not the first ones to think that. It's happened all through scripture. Abraham worried about scarcity because he thought there will be no more children. There's no way God could provide a child at my age. Moses worried that there would be no more people to lead the people because he couldn't do it. No one else will rise up. There will be no more leadership. Joshua worries that there's not going to be enough people to take the land God has promised. It just won't be enough. And we have similar worries. There will be no more money when we need it. There will be no more healing When we pray to God, it must have run out. There will be no more food if we give it away. There will be no more health care if others have access to it. There will be no more jobs if the immigrants come and take them. There won't be enough because God has run out of good gifts to give. And all his abundance that must have stopped before it got to me or what other people might need. And John 6 reminds us that our focus has got to be on the abundant generosity of God who has all the good gifts in the world to give and more. It is a trust in this abundance, a trust in his generosity. It's a trust that would say to Abraham, you will not always be childless. God can still provide. Or to Moses, there will be leadership. God will be with you and your mouth, as he says to him. You will have what it takes to lead this people. And to Joshua, there will be the people you need to go and take the land that God has promised to you. And for all of us, there will be the healing. There will be the forgiveness. There will be the grace. There will be the abundance that you need. It might look different than you want it to, but God has not run out of things before he got to you. God's abundance turns our anxieties to gratitude. And so when it looks like other people are getting gifts from God and you are not, are you going to grumble or give thanks to God? When the resources are running thin, will you cower or give thanks to God? When the bills are piling up more than usual... Will you doubt or give thanks to God? When it feels like the sand is running out of the hourglass, will you live in fear or will you give thanks to God? 
When we don't know where else to turn, can we, like Peter, say, there is nowhere else to turn, you have everything we need? Can we say that? There's a moment in this story that caught my attention that I'd never paid it, that never noticed before. During all the grumbling and cowering and doubting and people are beginning to leave, the crowds are leaving, all of Jesus' sort of second ring disciples are leaving and he's left with just his 12. And Jesus asks them what I think is a pretty vulnerable question. He looks at them and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Everyone's deserting him. And Jesus says, are you going to bail on me also? And I think that's the question that each of us is called to answer. When we've witnessed abundance from God, can we decide to focus on the scarcity and respond with anxiety? Or are we going to fix our eyes on God's abundance and respond with gratitude? Do we leave? Do we stay? Each Sunday, a person stands right here and takes the bread and gives thanks and reminds us of the generosity of God and reminds us of this story. When they do that, are we still going to focus on the scarcities in our life? Or will we focus on God's abundance? Will we give thanks? Will we respond with gratitude? A few weeks ago, I ended a sermon by reading a prayer And many of you commented positively on that. And this week there was another one that seemed appropriate. So I'm going to end our time by reading another prayer. Again by Walter Brueggemann. This prayer is called On Generosity. And this will close our sermon. On our own, we conclude there is not enough to go around. We're going to run short of money, of love, of members, of years, of life. We should seize the day, seize our goods, seize our neighbor's goods, because there is not enough to go around. And yet in the midst of our perceived deficit, you come. You come giving bread in the wilderness. You come giving children at the 11th hour. You come giving homes to the exiles and futures to the shutdown and Easter joy to the dead, you come fleshed in Jesus. And we watch while the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor dance and sing. We watch and we take food we did not grow, and life we did not invent, and a future that is a gift and a gift and a gift and families and neighbors who sustain us when we did not deserve it. By your giving, break our cycles of imagined scarcity and override our presumed deficits. Quiet our anxieties of lack. Transform our vision to see the abundance, your mercy upon mercy and blessing upon blessing. Sink your generosity deep into our lives that your muchness may expose our false lack and that endlessly receiving we may endlessly give. Let's stand and sing.